I dig our choir. Don't you think? Yeah, that was a blessing. Well, I, uh, I'm going to tell you at the, at the get-go here that um, the Lord has blessed me. I'm a great sleeper. I sleep deeply and long most nights. For some reason, I only slept about just over an hour last night, and uh, I, <laughs> I'm laying there going, what am I going to do? i got to preach twice. So I'm just lowering the, bar, lowering the bar of expectation by telling you that, and hopefully if there's any major problems here, significant heresies of some kind that might come out of my mouth, there might be some grace that would be extended to me since you probably have been there, and uh, we'll... We'll do our best to, uh, uh, to, to get it done. I was talking with people in the commons, and I was uh, hoping I wasn't going to fall asleep during my own sermon. So, actually, Jay Adams is a well-known writer. I was to dinner with him. He's been in ministry for years. He says, he claims that he fell asleep once during one of his own sermons. He was preaching, and he had traveled all night to some place in the world. He had terrible jet lag, and he was preaching, and he said, I fell asleep, and I caught my head right before it hit the, uh, the podium. So, we'll try not to reenact that here today. Have I sufficiently lowered that bar? You're all expecting this is going to be horrible. That's what I'm hoping for. So, we come to 1 Corinthians, and in case you missed our introduction last weekend... Uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, our theme for this book is first things first. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but 1 Corinthians, first things first. It's kind of clever, don't you think? It's intended to make it as easy as possible for us to remember what the theme of 1 Corinthians is. First things first. I'm not sure what we'll ever do if we do Third John or something, but uh, this works for First Corinthians. And the reason that this is the theme is that Corinthians or the church at Corinth was easily the most messed up church in the entire New Testament. If there was something that was supposed to be important, they didn't make it very important. If there was something that was not to be that important, that's the very thing that they made important. They didn't have the first thing first. They had like the fifth thing first or the tenth thing first. And the first thing they put in the seventh spot or the twelfth spot. And the key, of course, in this, as we say, is to keep the main thing the main thing. And to keep first things first. To have the things that are most important be the things that are the priority in the church or whatever. This is true in your company, on the team that you play on, in your school or whatever it is. Any organization that doesn't keep first things first is in serious trouble. And it's true in the Christian life. As a believer, I got to have like the first things, the first things in my heart. And here in Corinth, this was a challenge for the church because there was so much corruption and so much compromise and so much immorality and so much uh, 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 materialism. And as we said last week, this is what Corinth was all about. Famous city, fourth largest in all of the Roman Empire. It was all about sex, money, and sports. Does that sound familiar to anybody? 
Well, that sounds like a culture that I've been in lately. That's the American culture. That's the American way is this is the world that we live in. And this is why first Corinthians is going to be so appropriate for us is that the compromises that took place in the church at Corinth are pervasive in the American church. And so what Paul says to Corinth is something that we need to hear and the solutions he offers are still relevant today. So that's why we have the theme. And by the way, what's the theme again? I forget. Okay. All right. Today's passage is going to tell us the story of grace, the story of grace. This is grace. This is my niece, Grace. She has nothing to do with the sermon, uh, but she's so cute. I thought it was an excuse to put her up there. So there is my niece, Grace. We're not talking about her. We are talking about New Testament biblical Christian grace. The story of grace. The Bible is a mirror to us. It is a mirror. So let's pretend this is a mirror. You know, I like to use my Bible as a prop. So this is a mirror. What do we do with mirrors? And what's the purpose of a mirror? We look at ourselves in the mirror, don't we? We see what we look like in the mirror. Many of us probably did this this morning as we looked in the mirror and we strove to, strived, strivened to. Uh, <laughs> to find imperfections and to mask them and to do the very best we can with what we got, right? So some of us did that. Some of you clearly did not, but... Uh, <laughs> That's what a mirror is for. The word of God is a mirror to us. It tells us our story. And this passage we're in today is going to be similar to that because Paul is going to recount the story of grace to these Corinthians. Like what, what happened, what happened to them? And we're going to see in their story, our story, their story of grace is also our story of grace. And if you dial in with this today, you are going to be encouraged. If you're a Christian here today, what the passage has to say is going to give us something to be encouraged by and to leave here ready to serve the Lord in a, in a fresh way. So stories, let's talk about stories for a moment. It is always powerful to hear somebody else's story. Like we had a video that played during the service. And it had some people saying, this is the way that I was. This is the way that I am now. This is the way that my life was, but this is how Christ has transformed my life. And this is what is true for me now. And we we probably all watched that with some interest, right? Because we're watching and we're hoping that maybe their story is like our story, that there might be a connection point between them. And when there is, this is a powerful thing to us. For example, have you ever traveled uh, somewhere in you know, the country or maybe internationally, uh, let's say it's in the country and you're like standing in line somewhere, say like Disney and you're standing there, you're waiting for the ride or whatever you're going to go do. And, and, uh, there's some people standing next to you and you're in line together so long, they seem nice. And so you say, where are you, where are you guys from? And they go, Oh, we're from the Midwest. And you go, we're from the Midwest. And you say, what state? Well, we're from Indiana. (gasps) We're from Indiana too. 
What part of Indiana? Well, we're north, northwest in Indiana. <gasps> we're from northwest. What county? Lake County. Lake County. We're from Lake County. Have you ever had a moment like that? And then you come to find out that your brother dated his sister or some kind of crazy thing. There's a connection there. There's a geographical connection. And the stories come together in a powerful way. This happens emotionally as well. When we hear a story that resembles our story or some pain in our life. I was with some men this week and... or. This last week, week before last, and uh, one of the men was sharing with me about a family in our church that had lost a child. And he said it with some emotion and in a very kind of, you know, a way that I noticed when he said it. Well, come to find out later that he and his wife had lost a child. And so as he related the story of this family, there was a connection with them that was felt. And you know this is the case as well. If right now I grab somebody and said, you come up here and why don't you tell us your story? And if they begin to tell their story and it's the same as your story, you listen, don't you? Because you see yourself in their story. And friends, Christians all have a grace story. We have a connection point with each other and with any Christian because our stories are all the same. We have been saved by grace. I was this way in my sin. I now am this way through Christ. And it's because of the grace of God that this has happened. And this is what the Apostle Paul now is going to do as he recounts the the grace stories of this church, these people who were real live people. These people here that he's writing to. We haven't met him. Someday we will. He's writing to real people. So bear that in mind as I read the text. Their story of grace is going to resemble our story of grace. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, your your Bible probably marks off this section like mine does as thanksgiving. If you look at that, and indeed, this is what Paul is doing. And I want you to notice, we've kind of helped this out here in the, in the screen. There are, there are, there, there's a story here with the tenses of the verbs that are used. We have was, were, which is a what tense? Past. We have an am or are, which is present. And then we have will, which is future. Past, present, and future. All stories have a past, a present, and a future. This is the way that Tom was. This is what's going on in his life. He rides off into the sunset and is happily married ever after. Basic story. And the story of grace has the same reality. There is a past, there is a present, and there is a future. And we see that in the tenses of the verbs that are used here. By the way, I want us to realize as a church family that uh, that meaning is communicated through language. 
And that language is defined by details like tenses of verbs. And that the inspiration of God's word extends to the very words themselves that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to write. This is known as verbal plenary inspiration. That's what the theologians call it. And it means that the words themselves, not the concepts, not the general ideas, but the words themselves were inspired by the Holy Spirit. For example, Jesus says this about the law, the Old Testament law. Not one jot or tittle of the Old Testament law will fail to be fulfilled. The jot and the tittle in the Hebrew is like the little, we might call them a punctuation mark, but they're just the little, little bitty marks, the little jot and the little tittle. Jesus says those are inspired, they'll be fulfilled. Or, do you remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, you know, they're talking about the resurrection. Jesus bases his entire argument that there is a resurrection on the tense of the verb when God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I am, not I was, I will be, but I am. So, important to recognize that as we study God's word and as we seek to be people of the word, occupied with the word, as Paul was last week, to recognize that it's a matter of seeing these kind of things. Right now, there's a class going on, and our our young adult uh, minister, Tony Sorcy, is leading a class back in the corner, and I stuck my head in there during the uh, first part of this service, and I said, what are you doing? We're doing observation of the text, and they're working through a passage, and they're doing exactly what we're talking about here, seeing the details of what God has written to us. So tenses are important, and this passage is basically outlined in tenses. You have a past tense, you have a present tense, you have a future tense. The story of grace has a past, it has a present, it has a future. So, Let's get into that then and see again in the mirror our story as we see in verse 4 that these Corinthians had experienced past grace. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. So Paul gives thanks for the grace of God that that the Corinthians had experienced. And we talked about this last week, the story of how the church began in Corinth, Acts 18, that Paul was in Athens. He makes his way to Corinth and he comes into the city and it's not like he arrives and says, Hey, I think I'm going to figure out where I'm going to preach this weekend. And he pulls out the yellow pages and goes, well, let's see. There's first Baptist church. There's second Baptist church. There's third Baptist church. There's fourth Baptist church, 10th Baptist church. There are no churches. There is no gospel witness anywhere in the city of Corinth. He walks into the city and there is just, it's a city dedicated to sex. And that is everywhere around him. And he walks in there and he begins to proclaim the gospel. And there are some converts, Jew and Gentile, that convert to Christ and they become this church. And so Paul now is looking back on that experience of grace that they had through the gospel. And he says, I give thanks for it. I give thanks for it. Paul gives thanks for a lot of things. I got to this point and I got thinking to myself. Because it seems like what he says here, I give thanks to my God always, is something that we see in other portions of his letters. And indeed we do. I went over to Romans and this is what I found Paul saying. He says to the Romans that, uh, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. He says to the Ephesians, I do not cease to give thanks to you or for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, so he's got the Romans, he's got the Ephesians, he's got the Corinthians. 
I went over to uh, Philippians and he says, I thank my God always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. So he's got the Romans, he's got the Corinthians, he's got, did I mention the Ephesians? I think I skipped the Ephesians. In Ephesians it says, but remember, I only had an hour of sleep last night, so you're going to give me grace, right? I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So he's got the Ephesians, he's got the Philippians, he's got the Corinthians, he's got the Romans. The Colossians, we thank God when we pray for you, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. To the Thessalonians, he says, that he is constantly mentioning you in our prayers. He says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.3, I remember you constantly in my prayers. He says to Philemon the same thing. And I got to thinking to myself, how long must his prayers have been? If every day he says, I am praying for the Corinthians, the Romans, the Colossians, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, then there's Timothy, then there's Philemon, and these are the only ones that we know. And I think that there is something here for us. The Apostle Paul was a man who was dedicated to prayer. He must have prayed a lot. And he loved to pray for people that God had brought into his life. And so our little, our little prayer time earlier in this service, for example, is a little picture of what it means to be somebody who is looking to pray for people. And I think there's an encouragement in this, don't you? That we ought to be people that are constantly in prayer. And uh, there's a lot to learn from that here with Paul. So, what past grace does he give thanks for? He says three things. First of all, that the grace that was given them in Christ Jesus. The grace was, that was, past tense, given to them in Christ Jesus. Let's talk about grace. Not my niece, although she is cute, don't you think? So adorable. That's the DeWitt DNA at work in there. Uh, Let's talk about grace. Grace is something that everybody likes, but few people understand. Because the Bible uses it in several different ways. And if you read it in one place and think it means this, but it's really meaning something else, then you get all kinds of crazy theology about grace. So there really are four ways that grace is used in the Bible. Let me just run through these quickly. Number one is that God is filled with grace. He is a gracious God. It is a character quality of God. And aren't you glad? (laughs) Amen. That our God is a gracious God. The second way it's used is describing the grace we receive in salvation. This is the sovereign grace of God that is extended to us without precondition, without any meritorious work on our part. It is salvation is simply from a gracious God who decides in his sovereign right to do so that he is going to extend grace to the sinner. Not because there is anything in the sinner that inclines it to that, but because he is a gracious God. This is the grace of amazing grace, the the hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. This is saving grace. This is what much of the New Testament is talking about when it talks about grace. That we don't earn it, we didn't do anything for it, God gave it to us. Why? Because he's a gracious God. Third way it's used is that we are in a state of grace. Romans 5 verse 2. We are in a state of grace. So when somebody says to you, what state do you live in? You say, I live in a state of grace. Not Indiana or Illinois. 
Some of you might say that I am in a state of confusion right now. I see that as well on some of your faces. But we are in a state of grace. And the last way that it's used, and maybe there might be a few more you might add, but the fourth one I'll mention is that, um, that grace that we need every day, the daily grace of God, that it gives us encouragement and blessing and sustains us in our salvation. When Paul says grace to you, this is what he's referring to, the daily grace of God. So do you see how this works? Do you get it? A gracious God extends saving grace to us, which puts us in a state of grace, and he empowers us in that state every day with daily grace. Gracious God, saving grace, state of grace, daily grace. I didn't say that to any of the other services, but I like that. That was pretty good. So grace, he thanks God for the grace that the Corinthians received. And he looks back at those days and say, you know what? When I think of the Corinthians, I think back to what happened uh, when you, when you began and we saw God's work in your life. Now mirror, mirror. Remember, this is not just something to think, well, isn't it nice that those people had that wonderful experience? We are looking at their story and we're seeing our own story. Christian, here today, are you thankful for the grace of God in your life? Can you look back to however it was that God brought you into the hearing of the gospel and how he worked in your heart and life to create in you faith to believe in Jesus as your Savior and the transformation that this has made in your life? We need to remember that, don't we? I once was lost, but now I'm fine, was found, was blind, but now I see. This is a tremendous encouragement to us. We cannot get over what God has done for us, his grace to us, to give thanks. In your prayers, pray that. Dear God, I thank you for the grace that you showed me when I was, when I, the grace showed me in growing up in a Christian family where I heard the gospel from the time I was a child. And I thank you for the grace that you have given me every day since. Because their story is my story. Their story, if you're a Christian, is your story. It's a mirror. The grace given to us in Christ. The second way that he uses, or the second um, uh, thanksgiving he has, is how they are enriched in him. And the him here in verse uh, 5 is referring to Christ Jesus at the end of verse 4. So the hymn is Christ, that we are enriched in Christ. Now I got to thinking, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately. I got to thinking as I was looking at this, and I recognized through the help of some commentaries and whatnot, that there is a lot about Jesus in the first part of this little letter. Like look, look again at your Bibles. Notice Verse 1, apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 again, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, grace given in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, enriched in him. Verse 6, testimony about Christ. Verse 7, waiting for the return of Christ. Verse 8, the day of Christ. Verse 9, we have fellowship with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ten times in nine verses, we have Jesus referred to. Now, why do you suppose that is the case? Who is he writing to? The most messed up church in the entire New Testament. What, does, what do Christians in a messed up church need? 
When every time they're with the church, there's rancor and there's fighting and they look around and people are suing them, each other in the church and there's somebody over here involved in immorality and you got all kinds of confusion about spiritual gifts over here and there's just, there's just anarchy everywhere. You could get discouraged, don't you think? And say there is nothing to this. It's never going to make it. What does Paul do here? He focuses them on the Savior. And by the way, that is what Christians need. And you might be here discouraged because there's something going on in your life and there's some issue in your small group or there's something about the church or there's some kind of issue in your family or whatever it is and you're focused on that thing and, you, and you're fearful. What do you need? What do we need in these moments? We need to have our eyes on Christ, the Savior. Not ten times in nine verses, Jesus, 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 Jesus. I think Paul would have liked going to a church that at least said its goal was to be all about him. Don't you think? Clearly, Paul was. Enriched in him, third is confirmation of the gospel. I'm going to say something about that in just a moment. So lots of past grace for the Corinthians. Amazing things that God did in their life. Now, again, mirror, mirror, what are you thinking about right now? Listen, what are you thinking about right now? Are you thinking as you hear the story of what God did in their life? Well, that's very nice for them. I'm sure happy that worked out for the Corinthians. Remember, we're looking in the mirror. Do you see your story here? Have you been enriched in Christ? Has he brought you along thus far? Have you had grace, experienced the grace of God in your life through the gospel and all the rest? What is your story like? Well, if you're not quite there a moment, why don't you take a moment and just think about what your story would be like if this wasn't true in your story. Like, what if today you had never been introduced to Jesus? What if today you had never uh, had that thing that salvation is in your heart? How would things be different, do you suppose, for you? Well, think about somebody that has not experienced that. And they're just living life the way that everybody lives life, where there is sort of like confusion about where's meaning in life. We talked about that with the beauty of the Lord, all these cheap substitutes we try to put in our heart. That's our world, aren't they? I'll put this in, I'll put that in, I'll put her in, I'll put him in. It just doesn't satisfy. Where does meaning come from? What am I living for? What is my significance? Why am I here? Where am I going? What happens to me when I die? All things that the grace of God answers in the gospel, without that, you don't have an answer for that. And so you live for things around here, which is why, by the way, in a week like we've had, where all the trouble in the financial markets, isn't it interesting? You know, in America, let's say the markets tank and the banks fail. Okay. What difference does that make? Well, in America, based on the response this week, I would have to say it is quite significant. Lots of people fearful about what all of this might mean. Why would Americans be fearful about their finances? Because Americans largely live for their money. And when you take that away, you don't have anything to live for anymore. But the Christian, you take the money away from the Christian and the Christian still has everything, right? Because for the Christian, Christ is everything to us and they can't take that away. 
Yeah. So, are you thankful for the grace of God? (laughs) Amen. Past grace. He has met our needs. He has brought us through trials. He has blessed us in ways that we don't deserve. So many things that God has given to us, we ought to be thankful. Past grace. Okay. Present grace. Verse 7 says that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is not a lot of humor in the Bible. We could wish there was more, but there is not that much. So whenever you get a little bit of it, you really have to enjoy it. And there is humor in this statement here that Paul makes. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. He gives thanks for the spiritual gifts of the Corinthians. Now, why would that be sort of an ironically funny thing? In the messed up church at Corinth. If you've read through 1 Corinthians, then you know he is going to rake them over the coals with how they have abused spiritual gifts. They've messed everything up. They don't get what they're about. We're going to study that in, in some months. And so, I mean, they, they just totally messed the whole thing up. And yet here at the beginning, he says, I give thanks for the spiritual gift that you've received. Okay, now that's, that's Bible humor. I don't think it's connecting with you, but you got to savor it because you don't get that many opportunities. It is ironic that he would say this. This is something like a uh, principal of a school being thankful that all the students were fed food in spite of the fact that they used the food to have a food fight in the cafeteria. Okay. Well, at least they were fed. I'm thankful that they were fed. What did they do with the food? They just messed it all up. So how can Paul give thanks for something that is so clearly misused and it's such a source of distress to him? And here is another truth for us. Listen, folks, listen. This is going to be helpful. Paul doesn't give thanks for what they did with the gifts because there is nothing to give thanks for in that. Paul gives thanks for the good giver of the gifts. God is the giver of the gift. God is the giver of all good gifts. James 1 says... That every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. Every good thing in our lives comes from God. And so the problem is not in the giver of the gifts or the gift themselves. The problem is what they did with the gifts. So it seems to me that one of the keys to living thankfully in this broken and insane world that we live in is that we need to do the same. For example... Again, let's talk uh, contemporary events. What's happened this week? Has this been a crazy political week? Oh, yeah. Like few I can remember, it's been a crazy political week. And you've got wrangling and people saying this, and you've got debates, and all the pundits are saying all kinds of things. And I sort of, I kind of get into that kind of thing, which is somewhat corrupting to me. I probably shouldn't because there's just so much froth out there. But some people just say, oh, forget them. The government, ah, and I'm just ready to be done with them all. And maybe that's where you're at today. I don't know. But wait a second. Where did government come from? Who established government? God did. It's a gift to mankind to establish society. So government is a good gift. We may not like the way that government happens, but it is a good gift from God. How about a difficult marital situation? You might be here today and you're thinking to yourself, oh, her, him. Wait, Proverbs says that 
he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So that spouse is a gift from God. Now, you maybe have messed up the marriage. She's messed it up. He's messed it up. It's messed up, whatever it is. But the gift was good and came from a good God. What about a difficult parenting situation? Those kids, those darlings. The Bible says that they're a gift from God. Now, you may want to return to sender, uh, but (laughs) they are a good gift. And Thanksgiving is always going to struggle in this world that we live in because it is broken and it is imperfect and things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. However, if we trace the gift to its source, there is a place to give thanks. And that's what Paul does here. They mess up the gifts royally, but he gives thanks for the fact that God gave them to them in the first place. So go back to God is what I'm saying. This is how you give thanks in all circumstances. First Thessalonians 5:18. This is how we count it all joy when we fall into various trials and temptations. Colossians, or I'm sorry, James 1:2. The circumstances, the trial, the husband, the, ch- the, 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 the child, the whatever the issue is, comes from a sovereign God who guarantees he is working everything for our good. So take it to God. Go to the God level and give thanks. And I rather think somebody here needed to hear that. Don't amen right now. Just in your heart say, that was me. Present grace. He gives us gifts, enables us. Future grace. Look at verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Notice that. By whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. These are two wonderful verses. Listen, Christian, if you listen, listen for the next five minutes and you're going to be blessed. Okay. This is what Paul is saying here. He says that he will sustain you to the end. What does that mean? We're talking about the future now. That God is going to keep us saved. He is going to keep us in the state of grace. That we are going to make it. Now, you see the word confirmed in verse 6? That the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you? And then you see the word sustain in verse 8? In the Greek, they are the same word. Very interesting word. It is a legal word in the Hellenistic Greek culture of the day. It was used in a legal document, and it meant this, guarantee, guarantee. And you know how this works in legal things. When you go to buy something, a house, a car, or whatever, uh, some kind of legal paper, what do they ask for you to do? You have to sign your name to it, right? And by doing that, you are guaranteeing that you are going to pay the mortgage. You're going to uh, be responsible for the car. You're going to be responsible for whatever it is that you are signing for. It is a legal guarantee. What is this saying here? What is, what is, what is Paul saying here? The foundation, listen now, the foundation of our confidence that we are going to be in grace in the future is that God is faithful. Now, I didn't say that any way that it needs to be said, because if you get this, you're going to be rejoicing. Listen, God is guaranteeing that we are going 
to make it. He is going to sustain us in this until the coming of Jesus Christ. We will be guiltless on that day. He is guaranteeing it. It's much like this. It's like if I can, and it's my third illustration about the week of news and all that, but I'm on a roll now, and, and this is the last pages of notes, and I've got a four-hour nap waiting for me when I get home. So hang with me. In the news the last two weeks, what has dominated? It has been the mortgage crisis and the financial crisis. Apparently, in the United States, over the last several years, there have been thousands and thousands of people who have written their names guaranteeing that they will pay mortgages. And apparently, there are a lot of people in the United States that have not been faithful to what they guaranteed. And the result of that is the crisis that we have presently uh, before us. Now, what about God in this? Listen, what about God? You know what what Paul's saying here? It's like, here's the document, okay? I will stay following the Lord. And we're all like, I'll sign that. Steve DeWitt. That's not worth the uh, value of the ink on the paper. Why? Because I am unfaithful. I am. My faith is wishy-washy. I'm up one day, I'm down the next. Good night's sleep, I'm a good Christian. Bad night's sleep, I'm not a good Christian. I have things that happen to me and I get discouraged and I wonder if it's, I'm going to make it and is it worth it? And, and then something good happens and I'm like, God is great and I'm for it. I am just like whoosh, up and down like this. Anybody with me? Okay, yeah. We are. We are unfaithful people. So this is what God does. He gets that paper out and we come to find out that, uh, that, that there's a co-signing. Okay, so I will, I will make it to the end of salvation. I sign my name. Yeah, great. Doesn't mean nothing. Here comes the Almighty. G O D. That mean anything to you? Pretty good, don't you think? God, you're going to make it. Not because we are faithful. God is faithful. Our confidence cannot be in ourselves. And if you're here today and you are discouraged in your spiritual walk, I would bet in some way it is because you are putting some confidence in yourself or you are looking at the circumstances of your life and you're saying to yourself, I don't know that it's worth it. I don't know that I'm going to make it. I don't know that I have the strength to get through this thing that God has put in my path. And we focus on the things or the trials or the people and what Paul is calling us to is to say, listen, your salvation is guaranteed because God is faithful. Our God is a faithful God. Philippians 1, 6, he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion. So this is a wonderful encouragement, especially if you're a member of a messed up church where everywhere you look, it looks like the thing's crumbling. There's anarchy everywhere. Nobody's being faithful to the Lord. You can look at this and you can say, this whole thing is going down. It's on the brink of collapse. What do we need in moments like that? And what might you need this week with the news that you get about something in your life? I want you to remember I said this. You need in that moment 
a faithful God and a confidence that God is going to do this in you and that you are going to make it to the end. I am so glad I can stand in front of you here today and to say to every person here who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you are going to make it. You're going to. Not, not because, not because I said it, but because God has guaranteed it. Okay, this whole thing rests on him. And I'm glad it does. <laughs> Left to myself, I can't guarantee my faith for one minute. But the Lord has made the guarantee. Our God never wavers. His promises never change. He is sovereign over circumstances. He never trembles. He never wonders. He's never afraid. He's never surprised. He is always the same. He is always true. He is always capable. He is always faithful. And if his eye is on the sparrow, then I can know that he watches me. This is our confidence, isn't it? Is in this great God that we serve who is faithful to us. And messed up, self-absorbed Christians like the Corinthians need to recognize this because for them, the sky is always falling and everything is about to collapse. Not the case. A focus on a faithful God who has given us grace in the past, who is giving us grace for today, who is guaranteeing grace for the future. This is a source of great encouragement to us. And I hope that it is for you today. Amen. Let's stand together for a word of prayer.